Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. We invite you to follow us on Twitter, at MacArthur1880, or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. In May 2017, author Peter Eisner spoke at the MacArthur Memorial about his latest book, MacArthur Spies. MacArthur Spies is the story of several people who resisted the Japanese occupation of the Philippines during World War II and ultimately helped pave the way for MacArthur's return in 1944. Thank you very much for being here. Being here at the, at the uh, MacArthur Memorial is a special thrill for me um, because it, part of my story comes from working here, as Jim said, uh, at the memorial, looking through the archives and, and trying to put together uh, the true story of these heroes uh, fighting in the Philippines uh, from 1942 to 1945. And, and so it, it's a great pleasure. At the same time, I'm trying to reach two audiences by being here, in a sense, because there's a sense in which there's a scholarly piece of this story, um, which I'm not going to delve into, into too much. But with luck, I've been able to develop uh, some information that nobody's seen before. Um, and and um, that information will now be held here at the MacArthur Memorial uh, so that any other researcher wants to see some of the material that I found, they have it. So it's a, it's a great pleasure to be able to do that. Um, at the same time, I wanted this story to be available to a general audience so that others beyond those who might be very interested in World War II, who might be thinking about General MacArthur, just have an idea of who these people were and what the story is all about. It's a remarkable group of people. Uh, first. Uh, primarily, in, in many ways, the book is about Claire Phillips. Claire was a nightclub singer, 30-something nightclub singer from Portland, Oregon. She came to Manila. She found herself in Manila on December 8, 1941, which some of you may know was the day of infamy because of the international dateline. Hours after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, they bombed the Philippines. And within three weeks, uh, Japanese were marching into Manila and occupied Manila and the rest of the Philippines for nigh on three years. Uh, Claire ran off to the hills. Um, and um, as, as some percentage of, of the population of Manila did, went to Bataan. And for the first time, found herself in some ways. And that story I'm go I develop in, in, in this book. But the other two people that I write about are also in Manila on December 8, 1941. One of them is John Boone. He was a corporal in the Army. Um, he uh, retreated with General MacArthur to Bataan uh, around Christmas Eve 1941, because General MacArthur realized that it would be impossible to defend Manila 
declared it an open city, and about 35,000 some odd American troops and about 60,000 some odd Filipino troops, all for all intents and purposes, the U.S. Army retreated to Bataan and then fought ferociously for uh, months uh, with, with no supplies, hoping that supplies would arrive. Um, reinforcements never came, and they, they um, surrendered in April 1942, uh, and um, Corregidor sur surrendered a month later. Uh, John Boone, unlike many people that surrendered, ran off to the hills, separated from his unit, and tried to put together what he would do next. So that's the second person in my story. The third person in my story is a man named Chick Parsons. Chick Parsons was an expatriate American from Tennessee. He'd been living most of his life in Manila. And when the war broke out, he was called in to uh, military headquarters. And the secret was out, but only in the US military. All the while, he'd been in the US Navy Reserve. And um, the commander said, raise your right hand, you're back in the Navy. Uh, he then, for the next months, as a secret US spy, uh, operated in the Philippines uh, and right under the nose of the Japanese, thinking uh, that he would be able to gather up uh, significant information and not knowing really what to do next. Um, his story ends with, uh, ends up in Manila in June of 1942, running off uh, on a, an exchange ship because he was able to con his way out of Manila, right under the nose of the Japanese, with his family as a, uh, as supposedly, well, he actually was the Panamanian consul to the United, to, to the Philippines. So a U.S. Navy officer speaking only Spanish from January to June 1942 boards a, a ship as a, as a Panamanian uh, consul on an, and in, an, in a diplomatic exchange escapes to fight another day. So he's the third person that uh, I'll be you'll be reading about in the book. I'm not going to talk as much about each of these people. Uh, there are secrets to be told and read the book. I will say that, that Chick Parsons is such a fascinating person that I've now started writing a separate magazine piece about him, which will come out in the Smithsonian in the fall. Uh, and um, he's one of the great unsung heroes uh, of World War II, as far as I'm concerned. I'd like to back up and say, why did I write this book? I've been fascinated by World War II for a long time. I think that it's, that it's based on my feeling that it's a story that we can identify with more than ever because it's absolute good fighting the good fight against bad people that must be vanquished. And it's, 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 you don't usually see that much of an obvious story in which people have to come together and fight a bad force and, and win or else. My first two books were about uh, fighting in Europe. One, one was 
uh, called the Freedom Line. It was about a, an American pilot that shot down over Belgium in 1943, rescued by a bunch of young women, uh, nursed back to health, hidden uh, as he uh, runs across Belgium through France and, and finally escapes to Spain to fight another day. Uh, the story is the story of an, ex an amazing uh, escape line with young people, um, mostly still teenagers, uh, fighting uh, undercover for freedom. The next one was about um, a, uh, a Jesuit, who, an American Jesuit journalist, who was brought in to help Pope Pius XI, not Pope Pius XII, Pope Pius XI before the start of World War II, to um, challenge Hitler, Mussolini, and anti-Semitism. And it's his attempt, and the Pope's last attempt, to try to stop Hitler before the start of World War II. There's a theme in everything that I do. I, I look for, for, for people that are not central, not the great figures, and use lesser-known figures to tell a larger story. That was the case in these stories. After I finished the second book, I said, you know, it's about time to, to, to face facts. One other reason that I'm interested in World War II is because my dad fought in, fought in the Pacific in World War II. And like so many people we've heard of the, greater, of the greatest generation, he was just like that. He didn't talk about it very much. When he talked about it, he told about the funny parts, not about the tough parts. And I wanted to learn more about what that, that meant, what, what, what was really going on there. And I said, what about turning to the Pacific? What about turning to the Philippines? All I knew was that my dad had fought in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, and I didn't even know what that meant very much. That brought me to the Philippines. A friend of mine gave me a book, a wonderful book, called... Uh, called Ghost Soldiers by Hampton Sides. It's the story of the rescue of the survivors of the Bataan Death March. In that book, Hampton Sides describes a group of women who are helping smuggle food and supplies and life-saving medicine into the Cabanatuan POW camp where the uh, surviving Bataan Death March people uh, were held. And in there, um, I read a, a, a description of, of a woman codenamed High Pockets who was described as the most intriguing, mysterious woman and the most important woman in, in, in supplying these life-saving uh, goods, foods, and medicines to the prisoners. And I said, who is this woman? What, what, what can I find out about her? And, and uh, I looked, at, looked her up on the internet. I found out that she'd written a memoir. I found out that there was a movie made about her. And all of what I read didn't seem to quite work for me very well. Around that time, I said, hmm, I wonder if the MacArthur Memorial would have some information about her. And I came down here. And the first thing I did was find that there was, there was not that much information about her. Most of it was contained in letters that John Boone had written to her uh, during the war. But I still wasn't satisfied. 
Um, for a couple of years, I searched. And finally, I found a document. It was not easy to find. Claire was a master of deception before, during, and after the war. She actually was married three times while she was still a teenager. Um, I think she was only divorced twice at most, not uh, of, the, of those three marriages. And, uh, you know, I, I, it makes me think of a line in Casablanca where Claude Rain says, I'd like to think you killed a man. Um, and in fact, one of the husbands kind of disappears from the historic uh, records after, after uh, they're married. So we don't know. But uh, she showed up in, in, um, in the Philippines, and she then was married uh, a couple more times, claimed she was married more times than she was. And I finally found a document on one of the last names of one of her marriages and realized that there had been a massive court case uh, about her um, attempts to get restitution after the war for fighting um, the Japanese and, and providing supplies. And um, in that court case, um, it indicated that only that she'd, she'd won a small amount of money, less than $2,000, after she'd asked for $148,000. Um, and nothing more. And I searched and I went to the, I was basically operating in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. I found a, a, um, an index card. It indicated there should be more about her. They said, no, not here. Go to the main office downtown DC. I went to downtown DC. They said, no, we don't think we have it. Maybe such and such a person will find it. Basically, it went on and on. Didn't seem that I was going to find anything. Finally, an archivist who didn't use a computer said, wait a minute, I think I know where to look. And he had me sit down, and I, I, he went back into the entrails of, of the archives. And I kind of felt like I w we were operating in the last scene of Indiana Jones. You know, like there must have been this amazing warehouse of boxes, dusty boxes. And I think it was, because finally he came back with a dusty box. And he went, here it is. Um, a trove of 2,000 pages of court testimony uh, on the case of, of uh, Claire Phillips against the United States, um, wrapped up in a nice ribbon that had been there since 1957, untouched. And when I opened it up, um, suddenly a little date book fell out of the uh, folder. And I opened it. I opened it and it was Claire Phillips's diary. And I don't know if you can appreciate how I felt at that moment. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was something that had never been seen. She didn't even know when, she, when it was presented in the court how it could have been uh, tracked down because she, she had been finally arrested by the Japanese. But here it was. And it told her entire story unadorned and really tells a, a major new episode um, in many ways of what happened in World War II. Um, so that then becomes the heart of my book. But then as I read the book, I realize that there are other connections to the other two people, John Boone, who she has been speaking to, and also 
amazingly, that she's in touch to some degree with Chick Parsons. So here's what happened. Claire Phillips was back in, the, in, in, in uh, Bataan in uh, the first months of the war. Um, for the first time, she was actually worrying about other people rather than herself, frankly. She was taking care of the sick. She was taking care of the wounded. She was delivering babies. Uh, she was trying to survive herself. The disease and, and, the, and the, the conditions that people were surviving uh, in the hills of Bataan were terrible. Uh, people that were afraid that the Japanese were going to come and arrest them, much less the problem that Claire was a, when an American. She was living among Filipinos. Anyone that uh, might have been harboring her you know, could have been immediately sentenced to death for doing that. Someone once uh, said uh, around May, April or May of 1942, there's an American that's trying to raise a guerrilla army. Maybe you'd like to meet him. She then is put in contact with John Boone. John Boone uh, nursed back to health, having suffered all those months fighting the Japanese, is in fact raising a guerrilla army. Uh, starts out with 10, 20, 30, 40 people, and then finally hundreds. And he says, you know, the one thing we need, Claire, is intelligence. If you could get back down to Manila, we will support you getting back down there, and then you can provide intelligence back up to us and create a courier system. Claire heads back down to Manila. Within months, she's opened a nightclub called Club Tsubaki, and from October 1942 until her arrest in May 1944, she's entertaining and spying on Japanese officers every night um, and, and has raised a whole group of other women who are sweet-talking the soldiers and gathering up information. At the end of the night, they collate what they've got, name of prisoner, uh, name, name of officer, uh, where they came from, where they're going next. Uh, excellent intelligence, John Boone said, and then sending it up into the hills. Um, finally then, picking up the thread of Chick Parsons, who has been able to sneak out of, of Manila as the, the Panamanian consul to the country of Panama, uh, takes a boat, a slow boat, avoiding Japanese, um, well, it, even avoiding Japanese encounters, even though it's an exchange ship, they still have to stay out of, of uh, battle zones. And uh, the ship finally, after four months, gets him back to New York, where he's immediately arrested by the FBI, saying, you must be a spy. How did you get out? Um, finally, that's, that's settled. He shows up in Washington uh, in September 1942, and then in short order, General MacArthur, who knew him before the war, finds out that Parth Parsons is alive, safe, and in Washington. Then um, comes a rather typically terse, uh, telegram from General MacArthur, in, who was by now retreated to Australia, uh, reorganizing the U.S. military effort against Japan. That terse message is, send Parsons immediately. Parsons is back 
in Australia and then on a submarine traveling to uh, the Philippines, the first of many trips, and running a guerrilla operation in the, in the Philippines on behalf of, of uh, MacArthur throughout the war. Um, finally, uh, Chick Parsons appears in Claire's diary saying, Parsons is in town. I've got to put down everything else and get stuff to him. It's, it's amazing that the connection was finally made, uh, that these three people were inter interconnected. So there's a lot more to tell you about in that book, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you um, read and, and, and ask questions about the details. I'll say one thing, though. I mentioned that my dad was in the Navy. He was an ensign on an LST uh, in uh, 1942 and 1943, on into 1944. And um, on October 20th, 1944, his LST was sailing toward Leyte Gulf for what became what might have been the largest naval battle, battle in, US, in world history. Um, at the same time, Chick Parsons had been sent by the U.S. military command to do advance reconnaissance in Leyte to track where uh, Japanese emplacements were to kind of be, make the guerrillas that, had, that Parsons was responsible for uh, aware that, that something was about to happen and in turn decrease um, Japan's ability to respond and also keep it secret what was going to happen at the same time. So as my dad is, is moving in, in, on LST-463 from the south up toward Lake Day Gulf with a bunch of other ships, Chick Parsons is making those people safe by locking things down as well as he could. Um, I found in the National Archives uh, my dad's deck logs on the morning of October 20th, um, and it describes the ship moving in toward shore, dropping off uh, tanks and men, and then pulling off under heavy fire. But you can, I can imagine that I owe so, at least some small thanks to Chick Parsons for having it made, made it better than it might have been hadn't the surprise been kept and hadn't the United States known where Japanese gun emplacements were. So it's my own little contact with, with uh, this whole story. Um, I think that that's about as much as I might tell you about it without telling you the entire story, um, other than to say that, there, that there's an important part of this story that means something very much to me. These Americans that I write about were among hundreds of Americans fighting in the Philippines during World War II. But they were fighting with tens of thousands of Filipinos who were surviving the occupation, fighting, dying, and, and, and suffering. Uh, um, by the time of the um, liberation of Manila in 1945, March 3rd, 1945, a month of battle, 100,000 Filipinos died, mostly civilians. Uh, it's a story that's not known uh, as, as, as broadly as it might be known. So I dedicated this book, and I 
dedicate everything I say to, about, about this story to the brave Filipinos that fought that war and, and uh, suffered more than most. That's the basis of the story. Um, I think I have a, an interesting question to ask, uh, which, which you can win in a bar bet. Of, of all of the U.S. military cemeteries overseas, where uh, would be the U.S. military cemetery with the most people buried? Where, where are most of those people buried? That's the first question. You can ask some questions um, beyond that. Thanks very much for being here. It's my pleasure to be talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.